Okay, welcome guys. <clears throat> welcome. So uh, if you're new, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, School of the Bible, we're going through each book of the Bible, um, chapter by chapter. And yeah, hopefully this will be beneficial to you. This will be helpful. So today we look at the book of Jeremiah. And it's going to be a bit of a different approach from our usual um, way of going through these books. Normally we go through things chapter by chapter, but um, the prophets, the major prophets are quite big, right? Jeremiah is actually, um, I think, the biggest book in the Bible by word count. So we won't be able to fit everything in the session. And so we're going to have a unique or different approach to it this uh, today. Um, as we go through it, um, um, hopefully I'll be able to share things like uh, context and historical context and all that stuff. So remember questions, comments, disagreements, feel free to stop me and I really do appreciate feedback. Um, um, so with all that being said, let's get started, right? Please keep your Bibles in hand and uh, we will be doing a lot of um, flipping around the pages. So the book of Jer Jeremiah is not chronological right it's not even thematic uh, it's quite a difficult book to break up and say this section deals with this and this section deals with that that's why we can't even go through it chronologically uh, think of like a series right there's episodes one to five um, except here in jeremiah episode four is the first one and then episode three is the last one that's how this book is so what I'm going to do is I'll spend just a, a few moments giving you the history, uh, the behind the scenes that's happening, the context of this book, because hopefully then it'll make sense. Because if you've read Jeremiah before, if you're reading this, all you see is this king and then this king and then that king. Um, and it makes it quite difficult to understand. Right. And I think that's one of the, the, the challenges with reading the prophetic books like Jeremiah, Isaiah etc but once you have the background as to what's happening in the book then it starts to make sense so i have a few details and hopefully it'll give you understanding uh, if it doesn't make sense or if i'm going too fast just let me know right so the ministry of jeremiah um, extended from about 627 bc to 585 bc so that's about 42 years and jeremiah served under the last five kings of judah which is in the southern kingdom so remember, uh, there was the nation of Israel, and then it was split into the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and then southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And the northern kingdom had fallen captive to the Assyrians about a century before. And then, uh, as you can see in the slide here, those are the kings, right, from Josiah to Zedekiah. So Jeremiah begins his ministry in the year 627 BC, and he tells us it's during the reign of which king. So look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of, Je the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Right. So as you can see, it's all those, uh, those kings have been mentioned there. So the political situation in the Middle East at that time involved four nations, right? Um, so it involved the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and then the nation of Israel itself. So I'm going to simplify a lot of things for the sake of understanding. So this is not comprehensive. This is just to give you an idea of the historical context, right? Um, so remember, if you can see this map over here, um, where it says Samaria and Judah. So Israel was called Samaria as well. And then Judah is where um, the temple was, where Jerusalem is as well. So, okay. So there's these three nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, and then the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel is constantly caught up in this crossfire of the other three, because the other three are trying to conquer and take up more land and rule. The Assyrians and the Egyptians, they are allies, right? So they work together, they form an alliance. And in this alliance, the Assyrians are the ones who had conquered Israel, specifically the Northern Kingdom. But the Assyrian Empire is starting to fall apart. It's starting to lose power. They were once dominant, but as nations normally do over time, 
um, they start to collapse, right? They start to fall apart. And then there's the Babylonian Empire, on the other hand, which is on the rise. They're increasing in power. The Assyrians once had dominance over Babylon, but in the year 622 BC, uh, the Babylonian king rebels against the Assyrians, and then he liberates Babylon, and Babylon is now free and independent. So the Babylonians are going to become the next superpower, and they'll do that by taking down the Assyrians. And this will happen 10 years after they become uh, independent, in the year 612 BC. But remember that the Assyrians had an ally, which was the Egyptians. So the Egyptians see the Babylonians getting more powerful and they get worried. So they send an army which travels through, uh, through Israel to assist their, their allies, right? I think I have a map here. Yeah. So I'll send you like all these, these details so you guys can go through it in your own time if you're interested. Um, basically, um, so Egypt is down here and then Assyria is up there. And so they, they join up there with their allies to help them fight the Babylonians, right? Um, since Egypt is allies with the Syrians, they also come into the nation of Israel and then they assert political influence over what happens in the kingdom of Judah. So when you read Jeremiah, you'll see Josiah's son, Jehoiah, who is Jehoiahaz, he becomes the king of Judah, but the Egyptian empire is not happy with that, right? They don't like him because he's not pro-Egyptian enough. He doesn't do what the Egyptians want him to do. They want a pro-Egyptian king in Israel. So they replace this Jehoiahaz with Jehoiakim. And that is now the third king. So you see how the nations had so much political influence on God's people. So I hope you're still with me so far, right? A few years later, there's another big battle between the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians at a place called Carchemish. And chapter 46 of Jeremiah speaks about this battle. And so does chapter 30 of Ezekiel, if I remember correctly. And the Babylonians thrashed him, right? They win and... Um, that's really when the Syrian empire comes to an end. And then the Babylonians flee, uh, the Egyptians flee and run away back home, and the Babylonians take over Judah. So now the Babylonians are in total control. They take over Judah, which is what Jeremiah prophesies in chapter 2, when he says, I see a boiling pot falling from the north, and it's going to fall into the south. Right? He says that, and what that means is that the Babylonians are going to come from the north and take over in the south. Once the Babylonians do take over the land of God's people, they begin to deport the Israelites. This is around the year 605 BC, right? They deport them and send them to Babylon. And the prophet Daniel, so we read about Daniel on Monday, he's also taken to become an exile around this time. So here the Babylonians come into the land, they deport the Israelites, but then they also leave some behind. And the Babylonians decide to leave a king in charge, right? A king named Jeho the king named Jehoiakim. They leave him in charge, but still under their orders. But Jehoiakim doesn't want to submit to the Babylonians. He doesn't want to govern by their principles and their dictates. So Jeremiah goes to the king and tells him, you have to submit to the Babylonians. You have to do what they instruct. Jeremiah says, submit to the Babylonians because God has raised them up to judge. If you submit to them and do what they say, we will be okay. God's people will be okay. But things will go badly if we choose not to submit to the Babylonians. So Jeremiah says this, and the Israelites call him a traitor. They say he's not patriotic and that he should be on their side fighting for freedom from their oppressors because how can God tell his people to submit to their enemies, right? But you see, Jeremiah understands that God has raised them up to judge and that purpose must be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled. But the king, Jehoiakim, refuses to listen to Jeremiah. Instead, uh, Jehoiakim thinks, how can he overcome the Babylonians? Uh, by being allies with him, right? By, sorry, by being allies with their enemies, the Egyptians. So he tries to help the Egyptian, Egyptian army, army when the Babylonians travel back down to battle. He fights against them so that the Babylonians are defeated. The Babylonians see this and they're not happy, right? They see this disloyalty, so they replace him with another king, this time named Jehoiachim. All these names are very similar and they get confusing, but these are all separate people. So this is now the fourth king that Jeremiah serves under. Later, in the years uh, 597 BC, there's a second deportation. And the prophet Ezekiel, uh, we looked at last week, he's taken to Babylon in this deportation. And then a man named Zedekiah becomes king of Judah around this time. So he's the fifth king, right? He's the fifth and last king. Um, 
but he's a weak king. He's always more concerned about what other people think. He doesn't have a backbone. He also ends up rebelling against Babylon and the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And the king, the uh, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough. And in the year 60, so in the year 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar goes into uh, uh, Judah and he destroys all the cities in Judah, including Jerusalem. He flattens it. Jeremiah is living through all of this and he's witnessing it happen. Jeremiah tells the people, look, just yield to Babylon, right? Don't fight them. Don't stop resisting. But they don't listen to him. Uh, And then Jeremiah tries to run away and flee Jerusalem. But his own people catch him and then they call him a traitor because he's trying to run away instead of fighting. Eventually, Judah is surrounded and taken captive by Babylon. And then the king, Zedekiah, he tries to run away with some of his men, but the Babylonians capture them. And then they're taken to trial and eventually they brutally executed. So the Babylonians then decide to put one of their own as a governor, as a ruler of Judah. But the Israelites don't, don't like this and they, they assassinate him. And the Babylonians see this and obviously they want to get the people who, who've done this, who are guilty of this assassination. But the people flee and they take Jeremiah with them and they force him to run away with them to Egypt. And that's where Jeremiah dies, down, down in Egypt. So that's a very quick, very uh, brief summary of what's happening in the book. I hope that makes sense. Um, if not, um, maybe we'll come back to it at the end of the session. Let's get into the book. So just quickly, any questions about that? Okay, so if you look at chapter one of one, sorry, chapter verse one of chapter one, in it, Jeremiah says, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So Jeremiah is from the southern kingdom. He's going to become a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's going to live through a very volatile period in the history of the nation of Judah. So he's both a prophet and a priest. And you will find a lot about Jeremiah reminds us of Christ. He's an amazing type of Christ. Jeremiah is a prophet who wears his heart on his sleeve. So Isaiah, when you read Isaiah, we don't really know about Isaiah, right? You can read the book of Isaiah and you won't get much detail into what kind of person he is. But with Jeremiah, you always know what's going on with him and what's going on in his heart. It all comes out. He's a very emotional character. But he's a very important one. So just turn with me in your Bibles quickly to Matthew 16. Um, Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew 16 verse 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, right? So we normally don't think Jeremiah as a great prophet, right? When you think of great prophets, I think most people think of Elijah or Isaiah as standout prophets. What's interesting about that passage in Matthew 16 is that as the apostles and other people looked at Jesus Christ, they were reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. I don't think many Christians think of Jeremiah as a type of Christ, but it is. And I hope we see that by the end of the session. The first thing we see see is him being a priest and a prophet. And his ministry, Jeremiah's ministry, deals a lot with the priest in the nation. But there was no record of himself as a practicing priest because he was called by the Lord as a young man, as a youth. And you were only allowed to start your ministry as a priest at the age of 30. So if you recall, that's when Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30, because Christ is the great high priest. And what we will see from Jeremiah is he's going to be attacking the priests frequently, right? He attacks the leaders, the religious leaders. And again, that reminds us of the Lord Jesus and how he would attack the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees. Like Christ, Jeremiah suffers intense opposition because he speaks words that people don't want to hear. Um, Jeremiah is falsely accused, he's called a traitor, he's thrown into a pit, he's thrown into jail, he's rejected by everyone. And if you look at verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So if you're familiar with Calvinism, you can see what's called the doctrine of election. Before you were even born, I knew you. And in scripture, to know someone is to know them deeply and intimately. In Genesis, it says Adam knew Eve and she fell pregnant and bore a son. So it's not an intellectual uh, knowledge, right? Like I know this and this about you. It's a deep knowledge. When scripture speaks about God and says those whom he foreknew, it's to say those he loved before they were even created, which is amazing. God is saying, Jeremiah, I loved you before you were even anything. And that's the beauty of grace, right? God has to love us before he makes us. Otherwise, you will say he loves me because of something I did or the way I am. But God does not love us because of us, right? He loves us in spite of us. Um, and if it wasn't the case, then we wouldn't have a relationship of grace with him. But God doesn't just know Jeremiah. He consecrates him to be a prophet to all the nations, uh, not, just, not just to Judah, not just to God's people, but to all the nation. So Jeremiah replies in verse 6, he says, Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So Jeremiah might have been around 16 or 17 years old. Put yourself in his shoes. God is calling you. You're a teenager, and you are the one who has to go and confront a whole religious system, the whole nation, right? even the king. And the Lord tells him, they're not going to listen to you, right? God tells Jeremiah, you're going to say all these things, but the people will not listen to you. And so sometimes Jeremiah will be complaining and crying, and he'll be sad about all the things he has to do. And the Lord doesn't want to hear it. God says, if you can't even run with men, what are you going to do with horses? Basically saying, if you can't do it when it's easy, then what are you going to do when it gets really difficult, right? And in verse 7, says but the lord said to me do not say i am only a youth for to all for to all to whom i send you you shall go and whatever i command you you shall speak do not be afraid of their faces for i am with you to deliver you declares the lord so god is encouraging jeremiah not to fear their faces and their judgments do not fear man fear god jeremiah will face intense opposition but the lord will be with him to deliver him Verse 9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And isn't that amazing? Jeremiah, I've called you. You're 16 years old. I'm going to give you a mission. I'm going to give you a massive army to destroy the nations and raise up the nations. Is that what the Lord says? It's not, right? He says the way to destroy and raise up nations won't be through armies, but through the word, through God's word. The power of God's word is able to destroy nations and to raise them up again. As nations submit to God's word, they will be lifted up. But the power of God's word will destroy a nation if they disobey. And it's the same for a church or for an individual and so we must remember that the power of God's word is far greater than any human force. Uh, the nations are always coming and going, but God's word is a rock that cannot be broken. That's what Jesus said. So we can have confidence and faith in God's word above, above human strength and human, and human wisdom. And that's, that's actually a running theme in Jeremiah that we'll see a, later, a bit later on. So we get to chapter 2. So turn to chapter 2. We get to chapter 2 and we find out the reason for the judgment that is coming. It's because of sin. And we need to try to sympathize with God here because the heart of God comes out to his people. So look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. So this is the Lord talking to his people. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So look at the language used, the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. It's a picture of newlyweds. Uh, when at the Mosaic Covenant, God said, I am your God and you will be my people. And then verse 5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? 
and went after worthlessness and became worthless. So you see the Lord's heart here. What did I do wrong that they would go after worthless things and become worthless? And that's a very important theme in the whole of scripture, which is you become what you worship. If you worship what is worthless, you become worthless. Psalm 115 says exactly that. It says you become what you worship. You are only worth the value of the idol you bow down to. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So the Lord will later say, go to Cyprus, go to Kedar, go to other nations. These people who are not worshipping real gods, do they swap their gods? Do they change their gods? Do they exchange them for another false god? No, they don't. They are faithful to their idols. But you worship the true and living God and yet you swap me for something else, for a false God, for an idol. What happens when you do that? You lose your glory. And there's this link between worship and glory and image. So when God made us, he made us to be image bearers of him, to display his glory to the world, to reflect the glory of God in the same way the moon reflects the light and the glory of the sun. And we were made to worship him. But when you worship what is false, you lose your reflective power in a sense. And that's what the book of Romans says, right? It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when you understand this principle, it means you have sinned and you've fallen short of this glory. You're no longer displaying the glory of God the way you were designed to. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when you become a believer and you come to Christ, when you worship Christ, we are changed from glory to glory. So we become what we worship. And, and so when you're reading this, when you see chapter 2, you need to get the horror of the situation, the horror of sin. Because the Lord says in verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the image that is given here is you're living in a desert and here is a cistern, right? It's a container and it contains water, life-giving water. And you say, no, I don't want that. You know, um, I'd rather hew my own, uh, I'd, I'd rather make my own cistern and it doesn't hold any water. It's just mud and dirt and sand and we'll drink from that, which is stupidity. And that's why the Lord says, be appalled, appalled, O heavens. He's calling on creation to be a witness to the insanity. And that's what it is. That's what sin is. Sin is insanity. Verse 20 says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. You gave yourself to any lover, to any idol, like a prostitute. That's what it's saying here. And the Lord goes on to say that, Prostitutes are actually better than you because at least a prostitute gets some money. You do it for free. And were the people at the time committing sexual immorality? Many times they were, but that's not the main issue. The main issue is that sin, and we've discussed this in previous sessions, sin is spiritual adultery. And it's worse than playing the prostitute because at least a prostitute gets money, right? Uh, what do you and I get from sinning? <laughs> we get nothing. We sin for free. We sin for free, but sin is never free of consequence. It brings destruction. It earns you. It pays in wages, and the wages of sin is death. If, there's, if there is complete satisfaction in Christ as his bride, as his people, then he is everything, and he is my all in all. But the moment I say, no, you are not enough for me, God, I need this, I need to lie, I need to steal, I need to have hatred, bitterness, lust, uh, idolatry. Then I'm choosing that thing as the object of my satisfaction. So it says in verse 23, How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. So the image here is very hectic. It's hectic. The Lord is saying that as a prostitute, his people have no standards. 
nobody has to even try and put in effort with you. You're like a wild donkey on heat. You're extremely loose. That, that's how loose you are with sin, right? This is the bride that I loved, that I had taken, and yet this is how you behave. And you see, as you read some of these passages, there's a lot of similar passages in the book of Jeremiah. You see why God's judgment is perfectly righteous, because he has been nothing but gracious to us, right? And I'm emphasizing all of this because this is exactly what Jeremiah is doing. It's what the prophets do. They emphasize the horror of the sin to the people in the hopes that the people would repent. Now, in, in Jeremiah, there are basically two sermons, uh, two sermons called the temple sermons, one found in chapter 7 and one in chapter 26. And these temple sermons are where we see another link to Christ. In the Gospels, in, I think it's John, it's John's, in all the Gospels actually, you see two temple cleansings as well. So Jesus also cleansed the temple, but he did it twice. One at the beginning of his ministry, and then you also find one closer to the time that Christ was crucified. So one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one towards the end of his ministry. And Jeremiah has a temple sermon at the beginning of his ministry and one towards the end. So let's look at the one in chapter 7, the first one. Chapter 7, he comes into the temple and he says, uh, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So what were God's people saying at the time? What were the, the Jews saying? They are saying, nothing will happen to Jerusalem because this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The Lord is here, so we're okay. Jeremiah, stop this talk of the Babylonians coming. Stop this talk of judgment. And this is exactly what the children of Israel were doing at the time of Christ as well. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days, they got really upset with Jesus. Right? They got upset with him because he said he's going to destroy the temple, which is blasphemy. They were obsessed with the temple. And the application for us is it's religion. right? Our trust in traditions, in religious clothing, rituals, ceremonies, or even buildings and locations, we develop massive commitments to denominations to the point where they become like tribes. We can make those things ultimate, which is bad. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with looking after the temple, but it's nothing compared to a covenantal relationship with God. The people took comfort in the temple whilst breaking God's commands. Right? They, they rejected his word. They were living deceitfully and engaging in idolatry. But they were happy because the temple of the Lord, we have the temple, we can go and worship, right? We have the church, we will go once a week and worship God and everything is all right, even though our lives say something completely different. Religion is the most devastating thing. Most, more people go to hell because of religion, more than drunkenness or pornography or the most worldly example you can think of. It's religion, that is what most damns most people. Religion is incredibly powerful. You and I know that. Uh, just look at what Muslims are prepared to do. They literally blow themselves up in the name of religion. Uh, Buddhists will starve themselves to death in the name of religion. But religion won't save. And so Jeremiah goes into the temple and Jeremiah says the temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem will fall and you will go into captivity. He has to go into the temple and preach this, right? God has ordered him to do so. And he gets opposition. And, you know, the people, they, they treat him horribly because of it. So being a prophet in Israel was difficult. Um, he has to go to all of the culture um, and to those in high positions of authority structures in those cultures, in that culture. He has to go to the church, to the priests, to the prophets and to the kings. And he has to prophesy against them. God is bringing about a reformation, Right. Um, before he builds up, he will tear down the structures in judgment. And Jeremiah gets intense opposition for it. The other prophets, so remember, Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet. There were other prophets in the land. And those prophets were opposing Jeremiah even. And R.C. Sproul gave a helpful analogy of what was happening 
um, at the time, right? He says, imagine you, you turn on the TV and you hear from a guy that in two weeks, um, say Mozambique will invade uh, this country, uh, Mozambique will come into South Africa and they will take over your government, they will destroy the churches, they will throw you into poverty. Would you want to hear that? You probably wouldn't, right? Say now, after this guy says all of this stuff on the news, you turn to 10 other news channels. Uh, ENCA, BBC, Sky, SABC, whatever. And there's all these other analysts to tell you their ideas and their evaluations of what this messenger has just said. And they would tear him apart. They'd tear him to shreds. They would criticize him and point him out to be crazy and a liar, right? They would give you full assurance. Like, listen, you don't have to listen to, to, you don't have to worry about this guy. He's nothing more than a conspiracy theorist. He's nothing more than a doomsday prophet. Forget about him. And... That's kind of what's happening at the time of Jeremiah. And do you know why you would call Jeremiah a doomsday prophet? It's because that's what he is. That's, that's what he was. And do you know why uh, you, would, you, Christian, are a doomsday prophet? It's because you are, right? We are to warn people of judgment from God unless they repent. But as soon as Jeremiah gave the word from God, which is true, all the rest of the professional prophets would go around and make fun of him. They would contradict him and they would preach exactly what the people wanted to hear, which was the opposite. So turn to chapter 23 quickly. So chapter 23 and what God has to say about these prophets. So verse 9, concerning the prophets, um, sorry, verse 16 Thus, verse, chapter 23, verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. So you see, you see what else the Lord says about the prophets and the people. Um, verse 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned, they, they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So these false prophets, these professional prophets did not seek the counsel of God. They spoke on their own authority. They spoke from their own evil hearts. And God says in verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? And then verse 28, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Right. So verse 28 is a very powerful verse for uh, us believers. If people want to tell their dreams, their visions, let them tell their dreams. Your job, Christian, is to preach the word faithfully, to stand on the word. Do you have God's word? Yes, preach it because God's word is complete. God's word is sufficient. And what we can learn from Jeremiah is that if 10, 20, 100 people stand up and contradict faithful preaching, then too bad, right? Too bad, but we know that God is in control. The Lord will take care of it. Don't let opposition and slander and mockery tempt you to compromise on God's word because you will encounter opposition. When you preach that homosexuals and fornicators will not enter the kingdom or that a wife must submit to her husband or that God made them male and female or that Jesus is Lord and is the only way, there will be 10 other guys preaching the opposite. Right, there will be ten other people saying you're being too offensive, you too, you too X Y Z, and who will the people follow? Those guys, they will follow those guys because they are most likely preaching what those people want to hear, and so the priests and the politicians, they get together and they try to have Jeremiah assassinated. They mistreat him, they lock him up at some point. He's humiliated in public for proclaiming God's word, and it's not easy. Jeremiah cries out and is in despair because of what he has to endure. If you, read, if you read chapter 20, you will see that. But nevertheless, he doesn't compromise on God's word, right? God says those who stand faithfully on his word. And so we must not compromise on faithfully preaching God's word. It's hard 
But don't hide, right? Don't try to be subtle about your faith. Don't try to charm people into the kingdom of God. Prophets are to be boldly proclaiming. Uh, don't, don't be a silent spectator as a Christian. Paul says those who believe with their heart and proclaim with their mouth, right? Those are the children of God. Um, so let's turn to chapter 26. This is the second uh, temple sermon now, temple sermon. So Jeremiah 26, verse 8. Verse 8 says, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house, speaking of the temple, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate, without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And then verse 11 then the priest and the prophet said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves a sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your own ears. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there's a guy named Stephen. And Stephen gives a strange sermon to the Jews. And the Jews are listening, you know, it's, they're listening and they're, they're, they're attentive until Stephen says, This temple is nothing. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. What temple can you build for God, right? Stephen says that, and they get mad with him, and then they stone him, they kill him. They get mad at him because religion, right? And the exact same thing that they are saying to Jeremiah is what they said to Stephen. Um, and so Jeremiah has two t these two temple sermons, and the response is the same with Christ. Um, that's why when people are looking at... So all these, all these things that are happening to Jeremiah... Um, explain why as people are looking at Christ in the New Testament, they see a guy who proclaims judgment, he suffers, he's rejected, and he speaks against the religious leaders. He speaks against the temple. Um, so you know what? You know what? He reminds me of Jeremiah. That's what they think. And these are the things that make, some of the things that make Jeremiah a powerful or shadow, uh, sorry, a powerful shadow or type of Christ. Um, okay, let's turn to chapter 31 quickly. So if you go to chapter 31, remember the book is not, is not chronological. So if you go with me to chapter 31, you find that in the midst of all that is happening in the land, in the midst of God's people living in sin and the religious leaders um, not rebuking them, instead uh, prophesying and, and teaching false things, in the midst of all the, the bad that is happening in the land, God gives hope, right? There's the hope of a new covenant. So verse 31 of chapter 1 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, there's always there's always been talk and debate between Christians about Old Covenant, New Covenant, or Old Testament, New Testament. But it's important to remember that all the elements of the New Covenant, you can find in the Old Covenant. It's not as though um, in the Old Covenant, God said, you won't, you won't be my people, and I won't be your God. It wasn't as though the Old Covenant was an external law, um, but he didn't expect them to keep it with their hearts, right? The Lord said the opposite. He said, obey from the heart. And that's what he teaches in the New Covenant, in the New Testament as well. So all the elements are there. So in what way is the New Covenant and the Old Covenant different? Some say the, the Old Covenant is about works, right? And that the New Covenant of the Christ is about grace. But my argument is that they're all linked. In the New Testament, there are two words for new, right? So when they speak of new covenant, um, the, the word new can mean, as we know it, meaning brand new. But the other in, in Greek actually means new version, right? So you can say that the new covenant is more like covenant 2.0. Uh, it's similar but different. And the point being that the new covenant is far, far greater. And 
what is the difference? Well, the new covenant is more intimate. It's more intense and it's more immediate than the old covenant. Also, the mediator is different in the new covenant. So the mediator is not now in the new mediate in the new covenant. The mediator is not Moses or Abraham. Now it's Jesus Christ. For us in the new covenant, our access is more immediate than Old Testament believers. Right? We don't have to go to a special place to meet with God. We don't need the temple in Jerusalem. Um, we don't need we don't need a pastor or a priest or dead men and and women to meet with God. Right? Forget what the Catholics tell you. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that you and I can approach the throne with boldness. Anywhere in your life, anywhere, anytime, you can go to the Lord in prayer. So you look at the, the Old Testament and definitely they had the Holy Spirit because you can't believe without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to please God without him, without him making you alive in the Spirit. Um, but we tend to look at the experiences of Old Testament people like the patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we tend to look at your Moseses and them and be like, wow, they got to meet with the Lord. You know, uh, he spoke to them from a mountain or a burning bush. Um, but those experiences, those happened like two or three times in their lives, right? Every moment of the day, you and I can commune with the Lord. And so the new covenant is an explosion. It's, it's just a, a huge, massive change. And a much greater realization of all the great things God has promised, right? Every promise is now fulfilled in Christ. Uh, but we take it for granted, right? We don't enjoy it and we don't appreciate it like we should. Um, and so that's, that's our challenge today as New Covenant, New, New, New Testament believers. Those who know Christ, who, we, we can approach Christ and we can be with him now. You know, you don't need to go to church um, to walk with Christ, to, to be in fellowship with him. Um, okay, so quickly, because we need to do the book of Lamentations. Um, the book of Jeremiah ends with uh, basically a glimmer of hope, which promises the Davidic line would continue, right? So it promises the new covenant. It, it promises the, co the coming of Christ. And you see this in chapter 23, verse 5. Um, chapter 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll hold it there for the book of Jeremiah. That's a very broad overview of what happens in the book. Are there any questions, any comments about that? Anything that wasn't clear, maybe? take the silence as a positive so let's do the book of lamentations um and the reason why jeremiah and lamentations go together is because jeremiah wrote lamentations as well and i don't know if you've read it before but um as the name of the book suggests it's not a very happy book um it's full with weeping and lament right to lament is uh, an intense crying um and it's written by the prophet Jeremiah as a dirge, what's called a dirge. And a dirge is a mourning of the dead. So think of it, think of this book as a song of mourning. Because Israel has been rejecting God's prophets and did not listen to what they had to say. Also because there were false prophets in the land and the people chose to listen to them instead of listening to God's true prophets. And so God judged his people. God allowed the Babylonians to besiege and plunder and burn and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And so this destruction and devastation is witnessed by the prophet Jeremiah. And so he writes the book of Lamentations as a book of mourning and lamenting all that he sees. Uh, he's lamenting the fall of Judah and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So that's, that's what uh, Lamentations is. Think of it as like the diary of Jeremiah where all that you see in Jeremiah, this is kind of like him um, crying to the Lord about it, right? It only has five chapters, but there's a very unique structure to the book. 
Um, I don't know if you've picked it up uh, whilst reading it. There are 22 verses in chapter 1, and then there's 22 verses in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, there's 66, but 3 times 22 is 66. And then again, there's 22 verses in chapter 4 and 22 verses in chapter 5. Um, so there's just this repetition of 22, 22, 22. So if you were to guess how many letters are there in the Hebrew language, there's 22, right? There's 22 letters in the Hebrew language. And so the first four chapters are in the form of what's called an acrostic, an acrostic poem. And an, acrost an acrostic is when each sentence of the poem begins with a new letter or the next letter in the alphabet. So remember, the original text is in Hebrew. So when you read Lamentations in the Hebrew, um, verse 1 will start with the letter A like in the Hebrew. And then verse 2 will start with the letter B. And then verse 3 will start in the letter C, right? the Hebrew alphabet. So it goes like that. Um, and so in chapter 3, where we have 66 verses, you must take three verses and then you'll find each one of them start with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So in chapter three, it'll be like verse one, two, and three start with the letter A. And then the next three start with the letter B and so on and so forth. And it's very interesting from a literary point of view, um, the structure and, and the poetic devices that are being used. Um, and there's more to be said about that, but I don't have much time. Um, but if you want to discuss it, just stay after uh, the sessions. Um, and so, like I said, uh, Lamentations is uh, most likely, it's, it's universally accepted. It's traditionally accepted that Jeremiah wrote this, this book as an eyewitness, someone who's witnessing the devastation of the city. And um, in some parts, when you read it, there will be personification. So you will see that it's the city of Jerusalem speaking, right? And... Um, you'll see that that happened when God's judgment is being poured out on the city. So if you turn to chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 1 says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. So this begins in the same, in the same way as two other chapters, right? How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Uh, it's a funeral song for Jerusalem. And that's how uh, Jeremiah begins it in chapter 2 and 4 as well. Chapter 2 says, how, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Chapter 4 says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. Right? This is him lamenting. He's like, Lord, how has this happened? Um, he's crying out. He's weeping. And why has judgment come to the city? Verse 5, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions. It's because of Israel's multitude transgressions. It's because of their sin that the Lord is bringing judgment on the city. Verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. And we know what has happened, right? Uh, the city has now been destroyed. We know why this has happened. Because Jerusalem sinned grievously against the Lord. And in chapter 2 we get a picture of what Jeremiah is seeing. So turn to chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. So Jeremiah is literally, is literally vomiting at seeing the devastation in the land. Right? There's bodies of infants and babies either dead or dying in the streets. Verse 12. They cry to their mothers, where is, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And so this is one of the reasons why they are where they are. It's because they have listened to false prophets. The prophets had visions, but they were false and deceiving. And the false prophets didn't want to speak of anything bad or negative. In fact, when Jeremiah prophesied and said that uh, Israel would be exiled for 70 years, the prophesies laughed it off. They were like, no, 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 it's not going to be that long. It's only going to be two years. It won't be that bad. You know, telling the people, don't worry. 
people love to hear good things. People want to hear positive and feel good messages about how great they are and how, how great their life is or how great their life is going to be. All of this at the expense of the truth. Uh, it's not loving to not tell people the truth, right? No matter how hard and bitter that truth may be. But uh, that truth must be given in love. Um, uh, we'll get back to chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jeremiah continues to the extent uh, uh, to the extent of the talking about the extent of the judgment being experienced here by Jerusalem. And it's really heartbreaking reading how the people suffered, how uh, the children were starving to death and there was no help. Um, things are so bad that he even says that the punishment that Sodom, like remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the punishment that Sodom experienced was better than what they are going through. Verse 6 of chapter 4 says, For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. At least in Sodom, they were wiped out in a moment, right? It was a, it was a quick death, unlike Israel having to go through this long period of suffering. It's a slow death. And in chapter 5, he carries on, uh, Jeremiah carries on describing the oppression and the suffering of the people. He goes on to speak about women eating their own children, and it's horrible. Verse 9 of chapter 5 says, We get our bread at the peril, at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. So they can't even go out for food because there might be Babylonians ready to kill them. Verse 10, our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. It's important to remember that all these things that were prophesied in the law books in the Old Testament, so in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's a list of curses and God says, if you don't obey me, if you don't honor me, then this is what's going to happen. Hundreds of years later, what God said would happen if they disobeyed actually happens. And so Jeremiah is seeing all of this right? and he's crying and he's weeping and he's questioning God about it. Um, in chapter 2, sorry, if you go back with me to chapter 2 quickly. In chapter 2, verse 20, Jeremiah says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruits of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen to the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of, of, the, of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So it's a hopeless and dark situation in the land. Uh, and now the most important part of this book is chapter 3. So let's turn there. So chapter 3, even, even with the structure of the passages and the book, right? you could guess that chapter 3 is the most important one since it's big and has 66 verses. And it has a different, slightly different acrostic pattern. In a lot of, in a lot of preaching or storytelling, if you watch movies... Um, the story builds and builds towards the climax at the end of the story. And that's how most stories go, right? It's not going to keep your attention if the climax is at the beginning and then, oh, okay, the rest of the story kind of goes down. So what's the point? But in Hebrew poetry, the story tends to climax in the middle. There's what's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And with a chiastic structure, the high point of the climax or the climax is in the middle. So it's like, mountain shape right um, and so chapter three in this lamentation is in this lamentation song is the high point jeremiah says look at verse 17 my soul is bereft of peace i have forgotten what happiness is so i say my endurance has perished so has my hope from the lord so we can see that jeremiah is not in a good place uh, he says i have forgotten what happiness is my hope has perished this is a black hole that he's in. This is the pit of despair. This is a severe depression. You can't even remember what happiness is. There's no memory of such. But there is no hope, right? Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and my gall. My soul continually remembers it and, and is bowed down within me. So he's, he's, he just 
there is no concept of joy. All he knows is affliction. But then he says in verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So what is significant about verses 19 to 24 is that this whole book is just sorrow. It's just tears. It's heartbreak and weeping. But in the middle of it, at the high point, there is hope given. How this helps you and me practically is that we see Jeremiah at his lowest. And while he's at his lowest, he calls to mind. He brings to remembrance the promises of God. Right? He remembers who God is. He remembers because he had forgotten. And to forget here in the Hebrew context is not forgetting as in a loss of information. Um, um, it's, not, it's not to forget details or information. It's to forget experientially. And so it's important to remember why is it that we continually have to read the scriptures every day? Why is it that we have to go to church so frequently? Why do we go weekly, you know, every Sunday? Uh, sometimes twice on a Sunday. Isn't that overkill? Isn't that isn't once a month going to church okay? Well, God in his wisdom has determined on a weekly basis because we forget, right? We forget who God is. You and I need fellowship. We need preaching. We need teaching. We need the singing of God's word. We need communion. Why? What is what does Jesus' Jesus's command in, in having communion? Do this in remembrance of me. It's not like we forget who Christ is. It's not like we forget... Um, who Jesus was, right? We tend to forget who Jesus has been to us and who he still is for us, to us, right? And we, we need to remember, like Jeremiah, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so whenever we're going through the motions, through the darkness, when it feels like uh, you are in a pit and you're stuck and there's no light in your life, one of the things we need to try and do is to remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Uh, it's really difficult because when you're in that state, the last thing you feel like doing is going to church or being around believers. The, temp the temptation is to isolate yourself. Uh, the last thing you want to do is to pray and to read your Bible. You just want to, to shut yourself off from everything. But fellowship is actually the very thing you probably need in those moments. Um, we need to remember the attributes of God. We need to remember who God is and all the goodness we have experienced from him because he is still the same God and he is just as good now as he was back then. Jeremiah remembers the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercies and remembers that this is what God is really like. Right? I'm not going to let my circumstances define God to me. God is doing this to me, therefore he can't be loving and compassionate and, and, and kind. No, God's love and loyalty to his people never end. Uh, Jeremiah was an Old Testament believer. You and I have the New Testament, so we are able to look to Christ and the cross. His perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. In Christ, we have the fullness of God displayed most clearly. right? And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So when we are in the pits of darkness and despair, you and I can remember the gospel. right? Remember God's goodness and love, right? How can we doubt his love for us when the father spared not his own son for our sake, uh, when Jesus freely gave himself for us? So the gospel, very practically, is our way of remembering God and how he displayed his steadfast love and his mercies in Christ. Um, okay, so quickly in closing, because we're over time. What is the main message we can take from this book, from Lamentations? It's quite simple. God's judgment is serious and not to be played with. Um, sin is serious. Sin is terrible. But even in the midst of that, God keeps his people in steadfast love and shows them new mercies every day. So remember that Jesus also lamented. Jerusalem received the judgment of God. And what we see with Christ is that the judgment that is poured out on Jerusalem is poured out on him for our sake. So that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a lament, right? So Christ lamented on the cross. Uh, but even in the middle of his lament, Christ remembered what his father is like because the Bible tells us that he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Even when God has forsaken him on the cross, who does Jesus pray to and call out to? He calls out to the father, right? To God. So even the Lord Jesus, when suffering has come upon him, 
even though he had no sin, he had faith, right? The more you know the Lord Jesus himself, the better you and I are to trust his person and character. Our suffering is meant to bring us to God. It's meant to deepen our knowledge of God. You will suffer in this life. Uh, We come into this world crying and we don't stop crying after birth. We deal with illness, addictions, failed marriages, relational conflict, loneliness, and abuse. And, and as believers, right, although we don't cry, we shouldn't cry. We should lament. Lamenting is different to crying because lament is a form of prayer. It's more than just expressing sorrow or venting our emotion. Lamenting is talking to God about our pain. And it has a unique purpose to trust God. So you and I are able to pour out our fears, frustrations and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God because Christ has made us one with himself. And so we're able to draw near to the throne of grace, to turn to God, to bring our complaints, to ask boldly for help and then ultimately to trust God to make things right and to get us through our suffering. Um, Okay, so we're over time. Uh, but are there, if you need to drop off, please feel free. Um, if you can stay and or if you have a question or comment, uh, the line is open. The line is yours. Any questions or comments? <laughs>